Everyone turn, please, in God's Word to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for this time to come to your word. Please help us, Lord. Father, we want, we want nothing more deeply, Lord, than to see Christ exalted, Lord, that Christ would be lifted up in this place, Lord, to, to the highest place in our hearts. Father, please lift up Christ before our eyes. Open our eyes to see the beauty and glory that's found in our Savior. Help us, Lord, please. God, we pray that you would come and you would be with us, Lord, and as we read your perfect word, as we meditate on your perfect word together, Lord, that you would come, you would be with us, Lord, and that you would fill our hearts with worship. God, I pray that you would give us Moments, Lord, all across this room, Lord, just, just moments of, of worship to you, full, full joy in our hearts towards you, Lord. Faith rising up in our souls. God, please grant that to us, Lord, by your presence, through your word. We commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're about to read Matthew 27, verse 11 through 26. And we'll take a little bit of time to talk through just the plain sense of what's in this passage. Now, I know you've heard me say that many times, many, many times, the plain sense of God's word. Let me read one verse to you real quick that just reminds you of why I say that. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. It says, they read... From the book, that's what we're about to do. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense, or as I often say it, the plain sense. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So important as we read God's word together in just a moment, that God's people understand the reading that you understand God's word that's what we're here for your faith is not in sermonizing pastors it's in the word of God so we're going to read God's word and ask the Lord to give us clear plain sense of his word look at it with me now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer. Not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a, a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. 
Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This passage today takes us from, if you remember... Jesus was arrested and he had his Jewish trial, that sham trial where they convicted him of blasphemy. And now what we have today is they've they've moved him toward his Roman trial. If you remember verse 1 and 2, look at it, chapter 27, verse 1 and 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people, that's who presided over his Jewish trial, They took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor, who's going to preside over his Roman trial. Now, the Jews did this because the Jews wanted to kill him. They want to to put him to death. They want to give him the death penalty. But because they're a people under Roman rule, they don't have the authority to do so. So they have to take him to Rome. They have to take him to Pilate and try to get him to give him the death penalty. So what we have in our passage we just read is Jesus is before Pilate. He's mainly quiet. He's mainly silent as, as a, just a mountain of accusations and charges are piled up against him. He's being blamed. He's taking the blame for things that he hasn't done. The crowds are beginning to riot against Jesus. They want him crucified. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He's not a guilty man. He knows that they brought him here because of envy. And yet he gives in because of fear of the crowds and fear of Caesar. And Pilate, who knows that Jesus is righteous, is going to deliver up Jesus to death. Now, in order to better understand this passage, I want us to really focus in on three men that are mentioned here. Pilate, Jesus, and Barabbas. So first off, concerning Pilate, who is this man? Who is this man called Pilate? Verse 2 and verse 11 tell us he is the governor. He's the governor. Luke 3.1 tells us he's the governor of Judea. So he's the governor of this region. He's a man of considerable power, authority. They've got to bring Jesus to him in order to give Jesus the the death penalty. He's the governor here. Now historical accounts outside of the Bible tell us that Pilate was a very violent man, a severe man, especially towards the Jews. We probably get a little bit of a taste of this in Luke 13, verse 1, where it says this. 
the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Typically, he was a severe man towards the Jewish people over which he ruled. Now, in this passage, I wonder if you saw it, there were six questions. Pilate asked six questions in the passage that we just read. Two of them were towards Jesus, and four of them were towards the crowd. I want us to look at each one of these questions. Question number one is found in verse 11. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? So he's looking at Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Now this gives us some insight into what the charges were, what the accusations were that they were bringing to Pilate against Jesus. Pilate didn't just ask this out of nowhere. He didn't just out of nowhere say, hey, I'm wondering, are you the king? No, he's hearing that from the Sanhedrin. He's hearing that. This man's claiming to be the king. And so he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? They're charging Jesus with sedition, with insurrection. Now, Jesus did claim to be the Messiah, And if you read your Old Testament, the Messiah was prophesied to be a king, to be an eternal king, a king forever. But what the Sanhedrin is doing is putting a political bent on this and bringing it to the Roman governor. This man is speaking against Caesar. This man is trying to uproot Caesar. He's an insurrectionist. He's a man of sedition. He's claiming to be the king. And that's the political bent they're bringing to Pilate here. Now this would have been, if this was true, and he gets convicted for it, this is a capital offense. This is a crime. This sedition is a crime. It, it's a crime that will get you killed. Listen to this from Luke 23. This is the gospel of Luke's account of the same story. He says this, Luke 23 verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, here's the accusations. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And so in this first question, we see that they're charging him with revolt, with insurrection and sedition against Caesar. Second question that Pilate asks is in verse 13. He says this, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? So they're piling up these accusations against the Christ. And Pilate looks at Jesus and says, Do you not hear how many things they're testifying against you? Because he's not defending himself. He's not casting down any charge. He's sitting there silent. Don't you hear what they're saying? Of course Jesus hears what they're saying. But he sits there in silence. And they notice his silence. So they start piling up more and more absurd charges against the Christ against Jesus, and he just sits there quietly taking the blame. And it says here that Pilate is astonished. He's greatly astonished. Do you hear how many things they're saying against you? Now Pilate's third question is found in verse 17. But to understand it, let's start in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. So they had this sort of of amnesty tradition that at these feasts, they would take a prisoner that was there. And whatever prisoner the people wanted, Pilate would release that prisoner. That was a custom of this time. Verse 16, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And we'll come back to him. Here's the question, third question. 
So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? So he takes Jesus and he takes Barabbas and says, Which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now, I believe that Pilate thought this was a way to get out of his predicament. You say, what predicament is he in? He's in this situation that if there's a man here that is an insurrectionist, he's a man of sedition, then it's not okay for him not to deal with it with severity. And at the same time, he knows something. He knows that they brought him, not because this is a guilty man, they brought him because of envy. He knows that this is an innocent man. So if this is sedition, he has to, do, he has to deal with it. Caesar, his boss, demands it. And at the same time, he knows this is an innocent man, so what's he going to do? And so Pilate begins to appeal to the crowd. Surely he knew that when Jesus came into this city... A few days ago, that the crowds were bursting at the seams. Hosanna! Glory to God! They were bursting at the seams in praise for this man. So he appeals for the crowds. The crowds will ask for his release. And Pilate would be out of this predicament he's in. But it backfires. Verse 20 It says, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. It's not going to work, Pilate. The crowds are going to ask for Barabbas. And they're going to ask to destroy Jesus. So in verse 21, we get the fourth question from Pilate. His fourth question in verse 21 is a repeat question. Pilate's probably shocked that they've chosen Barabbas and not Jesus here. And look what he says. Then the governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And their response in verse 21 is Barabbas. The crowds want Barabbas, not Christ, not Jesus. Which leads to the fifth question. Verse 22. Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? You want Barabbas, Pilate says. Then what do I do with Jesus? Their response right here in verse 22. They all said. All of them. They all said. Not a friend on Jesus' side. Let him be crucified. Which leads to Pilate's last question in verse 23. Question number six. Why? What evil has he done? What evil has he done? And what's their response? In verse 23, what's their response? They don't even answer the question. What evil has he done? They don't lay out more evidence. What evil has he done? They don't lay on more accusations and more charges. They don't do that. They just say, crucify him. It says they shout. They shout it all the more. They get louder, this blasphemous chant over and over again. Crucify him. Crucify him. It's a riot. It's a mob calling for the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, Pilate has given a little bit of resistance, a little pitiful show of resistance to the mob. But then he caves in and he delivers Jesus to be crucified. Verse 24, then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now, just before he, that was verse 26, just before he delivers, just before he delivers Jesus to be crucified, Pilate does something, interest, something interesting. In verse 24, it says that Pilate begins to declare his own innocence. 
Just before he delivers up the the innocent one, the Son of God, to be crucified, he declares his own innocence. Verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, can you picture it? He took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now, if you were there in that moment, imagine you could be there in that moment, knowing what you know now, knowing what you know now, if you could be there in that moment and you're watching Pilate there, about to deliver up the Son of God, the innocent one, to be condemned to death, to be crucified, and he's washing his hands in your presence saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. What if you had a moment to preach to him? What would you preach to Pilate? Pilate, you're going to need something stronger than that water to wash your hands clean. You are guilty. You're not innocent, Pilate. You know this man's righteousness. It says it in verse 18. He knew that they delivered delivered him up because of envy. Pilate, you had a messenger sent to you. Your own wife was sent to you. Verse 19, your own wife was sent to you to tell you to have nothing to do with that righteous man. You're not innocent. You're guilty. You're about to deliver up an innocent man to death. James 4, 17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Pilate, you're not innocent and you're about to sin against the Son of God. You're about to sin against the Christ. Pilate knew the right thing to do. So why didn't he do it? Why didn't he do it? Well, what about the crowds? What about the mob, the riot, the crowds? Pilate valued popularity more than Jesus. What about fear for his life? There's a riot raising up here. Caesar might kill me. He fears for his life. Pilate values his own life more than Jesus. He values his safety more than Jesus. What about Caesar? What if this gets back to him? Listen to John 18, verse 12. This is what they said to, this is what they said to Pilate. If you release this man... Jesus, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. He didn't want to upset his boss, his king. He valued his job more than Jesus. He valued his status, his comfort. He valued it all more than Jesus. Pilate viewed Jesus as an innocent man, but not a man worth giving his life for. He viewed Jesus as a righteous man, but not a man worth laying it all down for. And I want to use Pilate as a warning to us all. As a warning to us all. The path to hell is not a path only occupied by those who absolutely despise Jesus. I think some people think that way. That the only people that are going to be in hell are those that spit in his face and hate him and want him to be crucified. I want you to be warned by this. There are going to be people in hell that have some respect for Jesus, like Pilate did. There are going to be people in hell that have given lip service to Jesus. He's righteous, he's innocent, like Pilate did. There's going to be people in hell that thought, you know, I'm pretty good compared to the guy next to me. I'm innocent. They're going to wash their hands. I'm innocent of this man's blood. But Jesus said this, and this is what Pilate needed to hear, and it's what we need to hear as a warning from his life. Jesus said this, Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Hear it again. Any of you 
who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What do you value more than Jesus? What do you value more than Jesus? Renounce it all for Christ. Jesus is more valuable than your life. He's more valuable than your comfort, than your status, than your job, whatever you could put there. He's more glorious than it all. Renounce it all for Christ. Lay down your entire life for Christ. Pilate missed his chance. Don't miss your chance. Now, speaking of the value of Jesus, let's go, let's go now to what this passage says about Christ. And this is sweet, sweet stuff here. Concerning Jesus, who is this man? If I just gave you a pen and paper and sent you away somewhere and said, I want you to just read this passage and write down, what do you see about Jesus? What do you see about Christ here? And I see four truths about Jesus in this passage. Number one, Jesus is the Christ King. He's the Christ King. Now to say that, that title, the Christ, there's so much, there's so much Old Testament. If you've read through your Old Testament, so much Old Testament packed into that title. He's the Christ. He's the one that from the very beginning, from Genesis 3, has been promised that will come. The Christ who's going to come is the promised one all the way through the Old Testament. And over, over and over again it was promised that this Christ would be a king. He would sit on a throne. He would be an unending king, a king forever. It was promised all through the Old Testament. And Jesus is this Christ. He is this king. The question is asked in verse 11 from Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate keeps calling him. Jesus, whom, who is called the Christ. Are you that Christ? Are you the king of the Jews? And in verse 11, Jesus gives him an affirmation. It is as you say. It is as you say. Now some people don't like the way that sounds. I want to read something to you from John 18. The Apostle John fills it out a little bit for us and tells us a little bit more of what Jesus said when he was asked, are you the king of the Jews? And listen to this beautiful, beautiful response from Jesus' lips to that question. John 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And John's going to fill it out for us a little bit. Listen, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? I love that. He asked him a question back. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom... My kingdom. Here's a man with a kingdom. Here's a king with a kingdom. A Christ with a kingdom. My kingdom, he looks at Pilate, the governor, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am, that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He's the Christ King, and his kingdom is not of this world. Also, our passage teaches that Jesus is the silent lamb. He's the silent lamb. Look at verse 12 in our passage. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. He gave no answer. He's just sitting there quiet. He gave no answer. 
Pilate, don't you hear what they're saying about you? Verse 14, but he gave no answer. Now he stops answering Pilate. Not even to a single charge. So that the governor was greatly amazed. He's just sitting there in silence. And the governor's greatly amazed. He's greatly amazed at the silent one, the silent lamb. And we should be greatly amazed at the silence of Christ as well. What do you think about a man like this? Who has such restraint that he just sits there in silence while a mountain of blame is being poured out on his back. An innocent man is going to take the blame and be punished for others' crimes. It's glorious. The prophet Isaiah said that Jesus would do this. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He's the silent lamb. The glorious Christ King and the silent lamb. The one that could have opened his mouth and shut everything down in a moment. Opens his mouth and everyone falls back. All his enemies destroyed. Planets fall. And yet he sits there quietly and lets all the blame get poured out on him. Glorious, silent lamb. Third, he's the righteous one. Now, Jesus' righteousness was already emphasized in the Jewish trial. Remember? They're trying to get these witnesses. We've got to get false witnesses to say it. And they can't even get it together. This is a blameless man. They can't get anything to stick to him because he's a man of righteousness. He's a man of innocence. And now here in his Roman trial, we see the same thing. The way it essentially ends is Pilate's last question is, Wow, what evil has he done? His Jewish trial, he, he didn't do anything wrong. His Roman trial, wow, what evil has he done? He hasn't done anything wrong. And then God sends a messenger to Pilate in verse 19. And what does his wife say? His wife says, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Why'd God give her that dream? Why'd God give her that dream? To exalt the righteousness of Jesus. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. I've suffered, I've suffered many things about him in a dream. To exalt the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus is the only righteous one. And that is really good news for sinners. Because only a sinless, perfect, righteous Savior is qualified to die for sinners like us and then give his righteousness to us. To those that would have faith in Christ. He's the righteous one. Fourth, fourth thing we see here about Christ, he's the suffering servant. Now Jesus suffered, Jesus suffered in many ways. And we see it in this passage. He suffered the rejection of his people. He suffered rejection from his people. He had been betrayed by one of his disciples. He had been abandoned by all of his disciples. And now you imagine hearing these shouts from these people, crucify him. We want Barabbas. We don't want him. Away with him. Crucify him. Just hearing the shouts of his people. John 1.11 says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Verse 25 is a horrific, horrific thing. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Can you imagine that? Pilate saying, I'm washing my hands. I'm innocent of this man's blood. I don't want responsibility for this. And they say, let His blood be on us and on our children. Rejected by his people. Absolutely rejected by his people. And then it goes on to say in verse 26 that he was scourged, scourging and 
crucifixion, this scourging, a horrific punishment of these whips with bone and metal attached that rip the flesh off the bone so that shreds of flesh are just hanging off his back and hanging off his body. And this punishment, this suffering doesn't even compare to crucifixion where he's nailed to that tree. And all of this violent death, why? Why does the Son of God, why does he die such a violent and horrific, terrible death at the cross and through scourging? Why? All of us, all of us to remind us that something worse is endured by Jesus. Something even worse. That he sits under the wrath of God at the cross. The wrath of God that's supposed to be poured out on sinners. The holy anger that's going to be poured out in justice on sinners that should be. He takes it for us. Jesus is the suffering servant. Glory to Jesus. Now lastly, let's look at what this passage says about Barabbas. Who is this man? Who is Barabbas? Verse 16 calls him a notorious prisoner. So he's already in prison. He's he's already been condemned. He's already been arrested. And he's awaiting his execution. Barabbas is awaiting his execution. He's notorious. At least to the Romans, he's notorious. Maybe famous would be a good word from the Jews' perspective. He's a well-known prisoner. He was a bit of a hero, not to the Romans, but in Jerusalem. Why? Luke 23, 19 says this about Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder, for murder. Barabbas is a murderer. It says it right there, Luke 23, 19. Barabbas is a murderer. And he's an insurrectionist. Like Jesus is being accused of sedition and insurrection, he actually is one. He took part in a rebellion against Rome to free the Jewish people from Roman tyranny. Many Jews would have viewed him as a freedom fighter. Barabbas is a freedom fighter from the perspective of a lot of Jews. A rebel, not without a cause, but a rebel as they would see it, with a good cause. Mark 15 verse 7 says this about Barabbas. Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So what we see there is among the rebels in prison for this insurrection, there was a group of men that were in prison, a group of men that were, that were in prison and awaiting execution for their insurrection and murder. He was a part of a group of men. Now it's likely, it's very likely that the two robbers that were crucified on both sides of Jesus, it's very likely that those two robbers were companions of Barabbas in the insurrection. The word, the Greek word used to describe Barabbas and the Greek word used to describe them is the same. Guilty for the same thing that Barabbas was guilty of. Which means that Barabbas was supposed to be crucified that day. He was supposed to hang on that middle cross with his fellow insurrectionists. Now it says here in verse 21, the Jewish crowds are asking for his release. Release Barabbas. Release Barabbas. And verse 26 tells us that Pilate freed him. A murderer set free. Now that's what happened to Barabbas, but so what? 
Why does it matter? Why, do, why does the Holy Spirit record this for us in Scripture? Why do we have his name? Why do we have the story of Barabbas sitting right here in front of us? What's, what's the point? And here's what I believe we're supposed to be taught about the life of Barabbas. Two main things. One is we're taught something about the human condition. And two, we're taught something about the nature of Jesus' death. Something about the human condition and something about the nature of Jesus' death. Number one, the story of Barabbas teaches us something about human nature. What does it teach us? That left to ourselves, listen to me, we do not understand our ultimate problem. If we're left to ourselves, we do not understand. We can't grasp what our ultimate problem really is. Now let me try to help you see that. Some translations of verse 16 don't just call him Barabbas. They call him Jesus Barabbas. First name Jesus. Now that's in some of the manuscripts. It's not conclusive. But his name is Barabbas. And that word, that name Barabbas, you hear Abba in there, Barabbas. It means son of the father. So here's Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, son of the father. And that's interesting, right? But here's what's definite. Both of them are freedom fighters. Barabbas and Jesus, both freedom fighters. One's emphasizing freedom from Rome. The other is emphasizing freedom from sin. One fought for freedom by taking life. The other is going to fight for freedom by giving his life. Which Jesus will you choose? Which Jesus will they choose? Now, whether or not you choose Barabbas or you choose Jesus depends on what you understand your ultimate problem is. You want Barabbas or you want Jesus? Well, you need to understand what your ultimate problem is. Barabbas would have preached that the ultimate problem was slavery to Rome. Jesus preached your ultimate problem is slavery to sin. Who do the crowds believe? The crowds were more worried about slavery to Rome than they were slavery to sin. They chose the man that offered them freedom from a temporal problem rather than the man that purchased for them freedom from an eternal problem. And this, this sort of thing still happens today. It still happens today. It's important that you and I rightly diagnose our ultimate problem. We must understand our ultimate problem. If you think your ultimate problem is political, you'll run to a politician. If you think your ultimate problem is intellectual, you'll, you'll run to a teacher. If you think your ultimate problem is philosophical, you'll run to a philosopher. If you think your ultimate problem is anything besides sin and the coming judgment, then you'll go to the wrong Savior. But when your eyes are open to the wretchedness of your own sin and the reality of the wrath of God that's burning down, that's coming, burning like an oven, Malachi said, when your eyes are open to that, you know Christ is my only hope. The righteous one, the Christ, the silent lamb, the suffering servant, he's my only hope. When your eyes are open to your ultimate problem. And this takes us right to the second lesson. The second thing we should learn from Barabbas' life. The story of Barabbas, secondly teaches us something about the nature of Jesus' death. The nature of Jesus' death. And it's this. Jesus' death was a substitution. It was a substitution. 
If you don't understand substitution, you don't understand the gospel. If you don't believe Jesus' death is substitutionary, then you can't be saved. This is a big deal. Substitution, this idea that Jesus didn't just die, he died in our place. That when he died, he died for our transgressions. He died for our sins. He didn't just die as an example of ultimate love. He didn't just die as a martyr. He died in our place as a substitute. Now, if you read your Bible, if you read your Bible through over and over again, you notice that God has been very adamant all throughout history to teach us the lesson of substitution. Over and over again, He's teaching us the lesson of substitution. Abraham has the knife raised. He's about to stab Isaac through. Wait! A substitute's provided. And a promise is given on this mount. Another substitute will be provided. The whole sacrificial system set up by God that a lamb would be slaughtered for your sin, that a lamb would be bled out and die in your place. Teaching you about substitution. Teaching you. God sent prophets to teach us. Isaiah, he was wounded. Why? For our transgressions. He was crushed. Why? For our sins. Teaching us about substitution. And after all that preparation, the New Testament tells us that God sends His Son, the one that all of it pointed to. Behold, John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And just as Christ and here we get back to Barabbas. Just as the Christ is about to be slaughtered like a lamb, he's about to be killed, he's about to be murdered as a substitute in your place. And just before it happens, one more illustration. God gives one more illustration in the life of Barabbas that his death isn't like any other death. His death is a substitution. Don't you see it? Jesus literally, literally died in the place of Barabbas. The guilty one is set free and the innocent one is slaughtered. The innocent one is treated like a criminal so the criminal can be set free. Substitution. The judge looks at one and says, Three times, according to John's gospel, he says it three times. I see no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. He looks at the other one and he says, murderer. And yet this one is, the innocent one is slaughtered so that the murderer can be set free. Now we've got no record. We've got no record that Barabbas saw this, that it meant anything to him at all. We've got no evidence of that. But the opportunity, if you think about it, sitting right there in front of him. You imagine if Barabbas saw Jesus being crucified, saw him going to the cross, how should that have settled on Barabbas' soul? Those are my friends dying beside Jesus. He's being crucified as an insurrectionist. I'm an insurrectionist. I should be on that middle cross, but he's there instead. Beautiful picture of substitution. 1 Peter 3.18 says it like this. Christ Jesus suffered once for sinners. Christ Jesus suffered once for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous is slaughtered. The unrighteous is set free. Jesus' death is substitutionary. Beautiful. And we get an illustration of it in the life of Barabbas. You know the hymn. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. 
sealed my pardon with his blood. And what do we say? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement? Can it be? And what do we say? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Grace Community Church, worship your King. Worship the silent Lamb. Worship the righteous one. Worship the suffering servant. There's none like Him. There's no love like this. When he chose the one to give the illustration, Barabbas, he didn't choose a good man to take the place of. He didn't choose a victim. He chose an absolute criminal. While we were sinners, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Before time began, he loves us and he sends his son to show it to us. Brother and sister in Christ, Grace Community Church, God doesn't just tolerate you. Look at the cross. Look at Barabbas. He loves you in Christ Jesus. His death was not just a martyr's death. He died in the place of sinners as a substitute. And if you have Christ, your sins have been paid for. And if you don't have Christ, you'll have to pay for them yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our Savior, Lord. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the substitute, Lord. Lord, we know that every single one of us, Lord, are Without your grace, without your mercy, without your help, Lord, we are criminals before you. Guilty. God, we know that we deserve eternal damnation. And Lord Jesus, you looked on us in love. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for mercy and grace poured out at the cross. Lord, we thank you for this. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you, that you would fill our hearts with the glory do your name, the worship do your name. As we sing this song, as we take the Lord's Supper together, Lord, fill our hearts with worship in response to your word. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.